the optimal life. What's going on, my friend? How are you today? Hey, Nate, how are you? Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for being here. So talk to us about collaborative negotiation. What exactly is that, Eric? Well, the the idea behind collaborative negotiation is, as opposed to compliant or competitive negotiation, is the idea of creating value. So as a collaborative negotiator, we don't look at, at the world as a fixed pie or as, as uh, like a zero-sum game where, where necessarily if one side gets utility or gets, uh, gets that slice of the pie, then the other side doesn't. Um, that kind of fixed pie creates that lose win-lose scenario, whereas a collaborative negotiator says, hey, look, we all value things differently. And we all look at the, 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 the elements of a transaction differently. We rank them differently. So if we can really use the, the idea of asking questions, gaining intel to identify how someone looks at value, then we can actually create more value in that transaction, identify exchanges between the two parties so that we can um, extract more value for our side. Um, and as, I, as I'm fond of saying, look, as a, as a collaborative negotiator, my goal is not to unduly uh, advantage the other side. I want to get as much as I possibly can for my client or for myself if I'm negotiating for myself, but I'm less concerned about what they're getting as I am about what, how much value I'm extracting and adequately satisfying the other side. So that's interesting because that's probably the first misconception that most people have, especially starting out new when they're needing to negotiate. It's kind of like we're going into battle, and right. it doesn't that usually do, that mindset usually doesn't work because to your point, this isn't a hundred percent on one side and zero on the other. They're, they're somewhere in the middle, um, yep. and the only way you get there typically is by being collaborative. Um, but let me ask you: so how do people then, in order to start figuring out, hey, what's important to the other side? Because that's really what you were really highlighting. Like, how yeah. do we know what's important? What are some ways that you can start figuring out what really is important to those people? Well, you know, one of the things that I like to say is you have to be ceaselessly curious. And we often talk about like, who, who are who is the best negotiator? The best negotiator is a five-year-old child, you know, and I have, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old at home. Um, and why are they such good negotiators? Because they never stop asking questions. They do not have a filter. So they're not, they're not questioning, like, am I asking an, an, a, a question that's too intrusive to the other side? Um, should I really be asking this question? They ask their questions. They use the broken record tactic. They ask it again and again and again. They know who has what they want. And they will, they, and they will actually divide the people on, on the other side of the, uh, of the negotiation against each other in order to get different information from different people. They go to mom, they go to dad, right? So they, are, they continue to gain intelligence, gain intelligence meaning intel, get, gain knowledge and information by asking questions. So the first thing is that we need to go to the other side and say, how can I identify what's a, what is of interest to them? What is it that they want? I'm not guaranteeing that I can get it for them. I'm not telling them, them that I'm going to get it for them, but I want to know what is important to you because the more, the more information I gather, the more I can start to rank those value elements. And the, the key to that is you want the other side to believe that the reason that, or to understand that the reason that you are trying to get this information 
is to satisfy their self-interest, not your self-interest. Mm. So you're appealing to their self-interest by asking them questions about what they want. Well, one thing that the six-year-old definitely does, they wear you, they wear you down, man. They wear you down. <laughs> I they think wear that's you probably, down. That's probably a nice little hidden tip and trick. Just wear <laughs> yeah. you down, wear the other side down. Just keep going, keep going. Yep. Eventually, eventually, that is definitely a strategy I'm sure that you employ at times is, hey, just wear the other side down. Keep going to get to the point where they're just so tired. Okay, we're done. We're Yes, we'll give you that. We'll give you this. Let's get this thing done already. Well, and, and, you know, that tactic is like, I called it the child tactic. It's also called the, the, it's a competitive tactic. Um, and that tactic, that, that tactic that we call the child tactic or the broken record is really that that's what it's there to do. It's, it's there to wear you down, to get you to just say, fine. Okay. And what we talk about in combating that kind of a tactic is to ask the other side to buy into the solution. So you can continue to say the same thing. And what I say to my children when they use that tactic is, all right, great. What solutions are you offering to the problem? Because you can continue to tell me that your shoes hurt, that your shoes make your feet hurt. But the question is, how are we going to solve that problem? And unless you're willing to create or come up with at least one creative solution, then the tactic has to stop. We have to try to find something else, another way to get to a solution. But you're right. I mean, we, we as collaborative negotiators, we certainly use competitive tactics when we feel it's necessary. And, um, and the more information we have, the more, the more, if we can ask questions in different ways, if I get a no from the other side, or if I get, uh, if they stonewall me in terms of gathering information, I'm not done asking questions. I'm gonna find another way to do it, whether it's find a closed-ended question way to do it, a hypothetical question, some sort of an open-ended question that allows them to just speak. I'm going to keep going and asking questions until I can start to what I what I call frame the other side in. I want to I want to start to identify what are they willing to do. Well, I, I know what they want to do. I know what they're asking for, but what what would they be willing to do in order to get a deal done? And as soon as I can start to see the spread there then I can start to identify whether we've got a potential deal and how close I can get them to my goal, you know, our, or my, our side's goal. Sure. So in the real estate space, which of course is what your specialty and expertise mm -hmm. is in, um, when you're dealing with the other side, what are some common things when you're trying to extrapolate this type of data from the other side, what are some of those things that those people are telling you, Hey, we like this, this, and this at the top of our list. Well, in, in, it could be, we, we oftentimes make the assumption that it's price, contingencies, closing timeline, and down payment. And, and that's, we, and I live, work in the New York City market. So I think that agents oftentimes make the misstep or the misperception that the other side is most interested in price, closing timeline, um, uh, down payment, um, and uh, contingencies. That's not always the case. I mean, sometimes you've got personal property. Sometimes it's a lease back. They want to have additional time to actually have while they close and gather, get the proceeds of the sale so that they can move on and, and do the next thing. Especially in this market where we have rising interest rates, sellers have a unique problem. They're in a unique position in many markets because it's a very tight market. But then if they're leaving, they've also got to they've got to find their way through a very difficult market right now. So what is it that I can find out? What about their specific situation can I find out that might uncover what 
Chris Voss, if you've ever read Never Split the Difference, and his company is called the Black Swan Group. Why? Because you're trying to uncover what he calls the metaphor is the black swan. At one point, the world only knew of white swans. And then in New Zealand, at some point, somebody discovered a black swan. All of a sudden, our knowledge, our understanding of what was possible with swans changed. And so that's the metaphor he uses for these ideas, these things that we didn't know existed, that we uncover. And once we uncover them, it changes the entire framework of the negotiation, because now we know something that we didn't know five minutes ago. How powerful and important is it if you have an all-cash buyer? Mm-hmm. Because you talk about money, you talk about con- contingency. That's That drives a real estate agent crazy at times, mm-hmm. because so many oftentimes there's things that get in the way of you closing a deal, whether it's an appraisal, the money's not there, they thought they had enough, it's not, they have the pre-approval, right? I mean, you could talk mm-hmm. about this stuff much better than I can, but- how powerful is it having a cash buyer? And if it is, are you able to get like, what kind of better price can you get for the property? Well, it's very powerful and it's powerful because all of the reasons you mentioned, uh, the, the, you know, the, I think, at, I think it's Quicken Loans or one of the, one of the companies that one of the mortgage companies, they like to say, get your pre-approval and then you look like a cash buyer. Well, that's not exactly true. Um, you're still financing. And in, especially in this, mor- in this market, you've got a lot of skittish buyers, people who see their rate go up by a point before they lock it in. And that could, be, that could be game over. They'll find any way they can to get out of that transaction. And then we saw that happen at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, so there, there, are, there are things about a cash buyer where they're waiving their mortgage contingency. They're waiving all the contingencies um, uh, that are associated with any sort of financing and that, that reduces the risk on the side of the seller tremendously. So the question for buyers then is, how can I give the seller that same sense of risk mitigation if I can't be all cash? And that's really the question that I ask with my, with my buyers. If I, we're going to be competing with 14 other buyers and a highest and best, and I've already confirmed with the listing agent that three or four of those offers are, are all cash and over the ask. How is it that we can compete? And, and again, I think it's a misperception to say that we can't because it, 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 uh, it assumes that, that, that we know what the seller's motivation is. But so I want to continue to ask questions about what it is that they want. But I recently had a deal with a buyer who was 20% down as a condo in Brooklyn. That market is incredibly difficult to compete in especially at 20% down. But by, uh, by engaging the seller on what was important to them, we were able to give them comfort by waiving contingencies that um, put the risk on our side of the table um, that allowed us to compete with those other all-cash buyers. And what we needed to do on our side then was to make sure that we were minimizing what that, whatever that risk is that we were taking on, that we minimized that to a point that we were comfortable making that uh, offer to the, to the, uh, to the seller. And, yeah. and we ended up getting the, getting the, um, winning the highest and best and closing successfully. Um, and part of that, again, that we had a, we had a mortgage professional that I've worked with, uh, frequently throughout my career. So I had a, a, a trusting relationship with the buyers and the, and the, uh, and, and the, the, the banker at Wells Fargo, and they were able to do their due diligence before we signed the contract so that we knew with a very high degree of certainty certainty that that deal 
was not going to fall apart because of an uh, because of an underappraisal or because the the bank wouldn't finance in that project, whatever it was. Right. But th- I assume you have to come in though higher, right? I mean, you have to still come in with a higher price point if you're competing against an all cash offer and it was over the asking the listing price. It really depends on what's important to the to the to the seller. I mean, it, it doesn't always mean that you have to be the highest in terms of price. You may be the better risk portfolio for that particular seller. They may find out that that all cash buyer has bid on three other properties in the neighborhood. Now, how good does that all cash buyer look when they're like they want to get into contract and move forward? And the you know we call we we use the term BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, which is from the Harvard program of negotiation. If if the if the the all cash buyer's agent has said to the listing agent, "Hey, by the way, I need you to respond to me in 24 hours because we're bidding on two other properties," and they expose their BATNA, their then they say, "Well, we've got a great BATNA. You don't take us, we're going down the street." Well, that might be all it takes for that seller to say, I, I, how am I supposed to know whether these people are going to be there at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Where my buyers come in with a 20% down payment, say we're willing to waive our mortgage contingency, we're willing to waive an inspection contingency, and we're willing to get into contract within a five-day period. You can make it so that your, your, your finance buyer starts to look better than some of the alternatives, even if price is the same or even if you're not the, the highest price. What is it? What is that risk mitigation worth to the seller? And th- and and that is something that's really important to any negotiator, not even in re- not just in real estate, but you look at the other side and say, what are they? What what's causing them pain? What are their pain points? Right? What is it that they're concerned about? How can I alleviate that concern and make it and still make it good for me? And, and that's where that's where getting to, into the self-interest of the other side is so important. What do you want? And when I get that, what do you want? When I really, truly make the other side understand that I want to know, because it, it, we call it the enlightened self-interest. When I know what you want and I can make that, that and I can integrate that into the overall negotiation strategy, then I get more because I'm helping serve the other side's interests. I'm not trying to give them something that they shouldn't that they think that the that uh, they wouldn't otherwise get. I'm not trying to give more than I need to. I don't like to give more than I need to, but I certainly want to set the negotiation up so that I identify those value exchanges and and take advantage of them. Well, yeah, and you kind of talk about on your uh, real estate negotiation institute website, <clears throat> the Rennie.com, the R-E-N-I.com. It's not just negotiation is not just back and forth necessarily with uh, agent to agent. There's other things involved in terms of, it's not just about X's and O's, the persuasion principle. I, I imagine that part of your responsibility as a negotiator, as a fiduciary representing your client is, Hey, how am I going to, ne- how do I not only negotiate this deal that gets everyone a win-win, but now I might have to come in and put on my persuasion hat and say, Hey, yeah. seller, uh, I know you have this, these, these fancy looking cash offers, but let me tell you some of the risks that you're talking. Do you have to deal with that type of stuff? Absolutely. And, and we oftentimes use influence and persuasion as synonyms of negotiation, because that's what we're doing. We are, we are as, as again, as Chris, I'll quote Chris Voss again, he says, 
that the art of negotiation is letting the other side have it your way, right? I mean, that is, that's the persuasive tool. And we, at, at, with the Real Estate Negotiation Institute, we've de- devised a, an acronym we call the Success Persuasion Principles based on Kevin Hogan's work and based on Dr. Robert Cialdini's work in these, these persuasion principles, which are derived from these, uh, the primal brain, right? The, this, this fight, flight, or make friends, that idea of we, this part of our brain that makes very, very quick, analyzed, but quick decisions to determine what we do. And so, you know, Kevin Hogan and, and first Dr. Cialdini did this research and um, started to categorize or started to um, put a definition and a name to these persuasion principles. And some of the ones that we find that are most relevant to real estate professionals are the self-interest principle, as I mentioned, that idea of, of, of the other side believing that what you're asking them to do is in their interest, not yours. That's the self-interest principle. The uniqueness principle, things that are scarce or unique are, are inherently more valuable. Like uh, Dr. Cialdini called that the scarcity principle. We call it the uniqueness principle. There's the contrast principle, the exchange principle that I mentioned, that idea of identifying items of value or, or when you give first, it engenders goodwill from the other side. That's kind of in the reciprocity principle and it's um, at its core, and what's then the sound logic uh, and sameness. Eric, mm-hmm. sorry, what's the contrast principle exactly? The contrast principle is is um, well, I'll, I'll use Dr. Cialdini's example in the book. Is that you know, Boy Scout comes to his door and says, "Hey, sir, would you like to buy a hundred dollar raffle ticket to win a car?" And he says, "I, you know, that's a lot of money. It's a hundred dollars. I don't need a car. I have a car. So thank you, son. You know, good luck to you." And he says, "Okay, fine. Uh, how about five one dollar candy bars?" And he says, okay, great. Gives him a $5 bill, takes five candy bars, closes the door behind him and says, what just happened? (laughs) I did not want five $1 candy bars. I had no intention of buying candy bars today. But in contrast to buying a $100 raffle ticket, it sounds like a really great deal. And that's the the contrast principle is, is using context to magnify the difference between two things, thereby making the thing that you are trying to persuade them to accept the better choice. Yes. That so makes, that's yeah. awesome. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. It's almost like the first thing that you're trying to persuade them, you know, is 99.9% not going to happen, nor do you care if it happens. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you're it's anchoring. The, right. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes you're anchoring to get them to, to see what, you know, what at the extreme, what you're asking for. Right. And then if they accept that anchor, then in contrast to the deal that you end up with, it seems like a great deal. You know, and that some, you know, sellers that use that when they price apartments, buyers use that when they come in with low ball offers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like a relativity thing. Everything's mm-hmm. relative. Something that might have seemed so bad before, oh, it doesn't seem so bad now because I have perspective. I have something to compare it to. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. You, yeah. You mentioned, um, you mentioned this is a tough time in the real estate market. You're in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're dealing with some of the most high priced real estate in the world. What in the world is happening to you guys in terms of this interest rate and inflation? How's that impacting you? Well, um, in the short term, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's really tough. I mean, if you think about it for buyers, it's almost like they walked into the store and the thing that they wanted yesterday is cost. 20% more. I mean, their buying power has been significantly 
reduced because of the drastic uh, hike in interest rates. Now it's it's funny. I'm I'm working on a on a, a YouTube kind of tutorial about mortgage interest interest rate factors. The fact you know that how we determine the 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 payment on a thirty year fixed rate mortgage uh, for an eight hundred thousand uh, dollar loan, right? So it, it, people get really concerned about the one or two percent increase in rates in the short term, but then they have to really start to rationalize or start to understand the world that they're living in. And, and because not everything, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So you have to still make the calculation rent versus buy. You have to make the calculation as to whether you think rates are going to be at 7% in nine months or, or 12 months rather than 6% or five five and a half percent So if you, you, depending on what your purchase goals are, it, it may not be as simple as just saying, well, screw this, I'm not buying right now. Um, because it's, you know, we, we make the decision based on loss aversion. What, what have I lost by not buying six months ago? And that's painful. But then the question is, you know, how do I navigate this going forward? And for some purchasers, it may mean staying on the sidelines because they just, they can't, they don't have the buying power that they had. If they were looking at $2,500 of pre-tax carrying costs for their mortgage and maintenance or their mortgage and common charges, and now all of a sudden that that $2,500 got them a one bedroom. And now that $2,500 gets them a studio. Well, maybe a studio is just not something that they can, that they can handle. Now the question then becomes, do you go, we always say price, size, location, amenities, right? So do you choose a different neighborhood where your money goes a little bit farther now that you're, 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 you're going to be spending more per thousand dollars in a mortgage? Um, do you just wait? Do you focus on properties that have lower maintenance or lower common charges? I mean, what is, do you go to a, you know, a lower amenities building so you don't have the doorman or the elevator or the laundry facility? It's just a five-story walk up with really inexpensive maintenance and you make up for it that way. So it really depends on the buyer and what their needs are short, medium, and long-term to determine whether this is something that should prohibit them moving forward and purchasing or whether they actually should ramp up their search because I, I've, been, I've been talking to analysts and, um, and economists for weeks since this started happening. I don't know one of them that thinks that we're going to be back to a 4% interest rate by the end of the year. Mm. That's yeah, just not going to happen. I don't think that's humanly possible with yeah. the way inflation's gone. It's probably going to be even higher. Yeah, by the end of this yeah. year, not from where it is now, there's going to be at least several more hikes of a half a percent every what sixty to ninety days. Yeah, and if you and if that's what you believe, then if you're a buyer, if that's what you believe, then the question is, should you wait? And then the other part of this is that I that I like to to coach my buyers through is, look, if you're right, let's just say that 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 you you think if you wait a year, you're going to be in a better position with interest rates. Well, the reality is, is that you're actually going to gain, you know, some of the, some of the predictions now are the market's still tight. You may still see highest and best, but instead of 10 to 15% above the ask, you're going to have a repositioning on uh, a settling of some of those pricing prices. So now people might be willing psychologically to go five, 7% above the ask. Some of these markets where they're going 30, 40% above the ask, predictions are that you're going to start seeing 10, 15 above the ask. So you are you may actually find yourself in a in a in a better market in terms of competition for you the buyer 
And then if you are right, in a year from now, we're back to 4%, refinance. Right. Then the question is what you've lost within that year, not what you've lost on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage over the course of an entire, you know, the, the, the entire term of that mortgage. Which, and now at least you still have ownership. If you were right. just renting, right? If you're just renting, that money's gone anyways. That's right. And, and you're building, it depends. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on what your, what your mortgage rate, you know, you, you're about 70, 75% uh, interest and, uh, or, uh, and then 20 to 25 to 25 to 30% principal at the beginning. But even, even though you're paying mostly interest at the beginning of that uh, mortgage cycle for the first five years, you're still gaining 20 to 30, 25 to 30% equity each month that you're, that you're paying that mortgage uh, payment. And you're not just throwing it away to a landlord. And in New York city, the rents are up over 10% year oh, over year right now. Well, this is so, a perfect time if you're a landlord to just hike up the rents because people can't afford what they wanted before. So they'll just, they'll come and rent now for a period of time. Yeah, it's it. It certainly is. Uh, it's the the rental market is, and and it's so tight. There's so little inventory right now yeah. that you've got lines of people uh, lining up to see one apartment that's available in that neighborhood. Right? It's crazy. a it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Let me ask you, how is this impacting? Like, what is this doing to the appraisers? This interest rate hikes. How are the appraisers handling this when they're valuing properties? That's a good question. I, I don't have a good handle on on whether that this is affecting valuation. Um, to my knowledge, it's not. In my in my case, I've had two deals that have gone through appraisals since rates have have uh, started going up, and it hasn't affected the um, the appraisal price based on uh, on other comps. Um, so. Uh, to my knowledge, it's not having a huge effect on appraisals, but uh, you know, it's hard to tell. Yeah. We weren't sure how that was going to happen during when COVID, when we had the lockdown during COVID either. And we found that there was a significant difference. So uh, I don't have a, a really big handle on that, unfortunately. Yeah. It's uh, TBD probably. See how yeah. this thing goes over the next. So much uncertainty out there right now. We're living in some wild times. Have you ever yeah. seen the real estate world like you've seen it over the past couple of years where at least over here, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. we saw property values going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Sellers couldn't, they put their house on the market within 24 hours. It was, it was gone. I assume the same thing in New York city. Um, have you ever seen such a crazy market over the last couple of years and now what we're dealing with today? Well, I, I, I have, I mean, we've seen this cycle in, in New York city, especially, I mean, when, when COVID hit, and when when we when the city shut down, and there were you know these these this this a thought that that uh, you know that, that New York was going to be a ghost town, which just well, many of us who had gone through, we were here in two thousand and one at uh, during nine eleven. We certainly I was in real estate when uh, in September of, of two thousand and eight, when it seemed like the whole world was falling apart. And, uh, and, and had a drastic impact on the real estate market in the short term, just like COVID did in New York City. I mean, you know, when everybody else's market was booming, we were struggling in New York City. And, and that's, that's changed. But that, that, that idea of, of, of people moving to suburbs, move, moving to bigger houses, getting out of the city, that certainly happened uh, in the early part of COVID. So, I, you know, I don't, this isn't something that we haven't seen before. The question really becomes, how bad does it get, and how long does it last? That's that's really where where we as as real estate professionals start to uh, 
uh, figure out and navigate what's going what's going to happen. And then you because you do have such a huge market and a dynamic market. You know, I I, I have a three hundred units of of rental uh, a three hundred unit rental portfolio and two buildings in Gramercy. I, you know, I can't I can't uh, rent those apartments fast enough. Right. A year, year eight, 14 months ago, I was sitting on, you know, tremendous amount of vacancy. And I, and the fact that that market turned around so quickly was shocking to me. So you have, you know, you have the push and pull of the rent and, and, uh, and sales market in New York city. Um, you have the stability of the co-op market because so much, there's so much equity in New York city. When you own a co-op in New York city, you have at least a 20% to at least 20% equity in that in that property some co-ops it's it's even higher you have to have a m- minimum of 25 30 35% down so the stability in the new york market is is uh one of the things that uh, that keeps it so strong do you feel looking at it over the last couple of years especially when there was all the uncertainty at the beginning of covid new york was very tough on the the requirements People were leaving, fleeing New York. Do you feel like that brought you guys, you and your other fellow agents, even closer together in some fashion? Like, hey, we're going to what what might have once been some contentious deals. Do you <laughs> feel it became a little friendlier and hey, let's all try to work this thing together while we fight through this? I made I love that question because. You know, I've been teaching collaborative negotiation to real estate professionals for almost seven years. I've been in the business for sixteen, and in in the real estate in uh, in, in the, uh, the the real estate business. So I've been doing residential real estate uh, in some capacity in New York City for well over a decade, and teaching negotiation for for a little less than seven. And when when COVID hit, I never heard the word collaboration so much in my life. I would start to, you know, I attended as many webinars as I could. I mean, what else was I doing? I was, you know, I was getting on Zoom, attending any meeting, any webinar, listening to attorneys and how they were trying to navigate deals that were already in contract or that were close to being in contract or that were, that hadn't closed yet. And maybe someone as a party of the contract actually contracted COVID, or maybe they lost their job. That was a huge issue during COVID. How do you navigate this process? And there was this mutual, this mutually beneficial relationship that started to develop. And you you saw the power of collaborative negotiation. You saw this idea that if people understood what the other side wanted and could make some concessions that were very easy for this side to make in order to make the other side a little more comfortable to do the deal, or they were able to extract a lot of value, whether it's 10, 20, 30, $100,000 of value in purchase price or give back um, construction credit. I mean, there was real value to be gained if you just understood what the other person was going through and kept that deal alive. So I, I, you're absolutely right that this, we started to hear this word collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm over here sitting here going, yeah, this is what I've been teaching for the last five years. Um, So yeah, absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. So I want to go on to the uh, psychological piece of this whole thing, Mm because in order to be a good salesperson, a negotiator, a fiduciary, a representative, you have to have some form of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Talk to me about can can somebody that's lacking in the emotional intelligence and social awareness departments can they ever be a good real estate agent? Oh, that's a great question. Um, they can't look. Th- there are a lot of competitive. Let's and and I'll 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 just start to. 
if let's say that they lack emotional intelligence and they use a lot of what we would consider competitive tactics. And again, comp- collaborative negotiators also will use com- competitive tactics if and when necessary. But if they rely on just tactics, hard bargaining tactics, they're just kind of pushing the other side around, which is what there are a lot of those negotiators in my market. And they do lack emotional intelligence and they do lack an understanding of how they could benefit by actually establishing some sort of relationship or trusting relationship with the other side. Um, do they, and, and there are some of those negotiators that succeed in our market really to a high, high level. Why? Because people accept their behavior and accept this bluster and these hard bargaining tactics and they, they comply just like we were talking about with the, the, the child tactic or the, the broken record, they finally just say, enough, fine, you take that, go ahead, you take the last, you get the last bit, you get the, the you know, you, fine, we'll just do it. And that compliance from a negotiator who is just willing to give in rather than actually try to find a way to navigate, strategize, and collaborate um, or, or to shut the other person down and say, nope, this is not how we're doing it. This is not how this negotiation is going to go. And if you're going to behave this way, then we're going to take a break and I'm going to let you compose yourself and then we can come back and actually have a discussion. So the, those negotiators do exist and they do well in our market only if the other negotiators who are negotiating with them, their counterparts, allow them to do it. Mm. But it is an, it's a huge, huge skill. And, you know, this idea of, of, of empathy and st- that strategic empathy and that idea of listening and, and, and being an active listener and really trying to understand what the other person is trying, is trying to achieve, I think that that type of a negotiator is able to, as, again, as I said at the beginning, create value where there might not be value at the beginning of that negotiation and relationships matter for that type of negotiator yeah. because you're developing long-term relations you, you're not looking at this as hey i'm dealing with a transaction necessarily right. i'm looking at the next five ten years working with this person from my firm from another firm and that's right i might give in here or do something here because i know that they're going to help me back on on the next deal and vice yep. versa right i mean that's part of the some people are probably very narrowly focused and only looking at a transaction and then there's people looking at it in terms of a relationship. Exactly. Yeah. And we use that term as well. That the idea of being transactional where we're not, I'm not here to make friends, Eric. I'm, you know, so, so stop, you know, stop with the small talk here. You've got your client. I got my client. Just, you know, let's just, let's just figure this out as opposed to, all right, let's try to figure out what the other side wants. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to, to, um, in, you know, somehow uh, benefit the other agent for a future relationship with them other than to let them know that I'm someone who they can deal with. I'm someone who uh, educates my clients, who brings qualified, educated, prepared clients who are who understand the idea of risk mitigation. So the next time you see me with a client at your open house, you give me a second look or you turn to your seller and say, hey, these are this is an agent you want to deal with. Yeah. That's the kind of forward relationship I want with those agents. Um, rather than any sort of a back scratching relationship, but I certainly want them to know that I'm bringing that, that I'm what I'm bringing to the table. There's value in my being a part of that transaction 
And the same thing, vice versa. I've got agents who come to my open houses and if they're putting forward a bid, I will absolutely go to my owner and say, I've dealt with this agent four or five different times. They're dynamite. And I've never lost a deal with this agent. They tell us, they mean what they say. They say what they mean. Um, they educate their clients. Uh, they navigate the process. So for whatever that's worth, if we're gonna if we're gonna start to create a structure of value based on the multiple elements in this transaction, they get that you know they get that little tick up because of who they are as an agent. Definitely, absolutely. Relationships matter, and yeah. I, I imagine that's probably the most important thing as a real estate agent to even get business in the first place. You have to have relationships, yeah, with your clients. How do you get new business? It's about relationship building. How, how talk a little bit about that? Cause there's a lot of agents out there, a lot of young people coming up. Mm -hmm. How do you get new clients? You know, it, it used to be that I would have to do a lot more networking. I would have to reach out three degrees beyond my network. And I, so as you, that's a wonderful thing about this business is as you're in it and more successful, you have to, you don't have to look as far down deep into that network. But certainly, I mean, how you get clients, you're right. Stephen M. R. Covey talks about the, the four cores of credibility. You know, you've got character and competence. So, you know, when I teach my courses, we focus on that idea of the four cores of credibility. How do you display your value proposition? How do you convey a value proposition to any potential clients, any potential for sale by owners, anybody who's out there who may be a potential client for you. What is your value proposition? How do you how how do you convey your your level of character, you know, your 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 motivation, your integrity? Um, how do you do that? And then the, the other you know uh, dimension of those four cores of credibility is competence. How do you show that you can get the results that they are looking for? How do you show that you have the experience that you need? And if you're a new agent to the business, you may not have 10, 15, 20 transactions under your belt. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a history. This is maybe your second career, maybe whatever it was that you did in the past. How are you conveying those benefits to that particular client? So part of it is just having a very clear value proposition. And then the, another part of it is making sure that you're, you're establishing yourself with a firm that will, that will help you. You know, I think a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of agents make the make the mistake, in my opinion, of just going with whatever looks like the top dollar, you know, the highest split, and they're not really thinking about what do I need, what is it that I need from my firm, and, and certainly real estate firms can provide a benefit to their agents, whether it's handing them clients or just giving them um, uh, uh, marketing capabilities, things like that. And then social media is, a, is another huge component. I mean, I certainly think that um, having, you know, establish, establishing yourself as a, as, as a person in the industry um, that can be relatable and that can be trustworthy, that can convey that value proposition through video is also important. I think that, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Well, it goes back to the three rules of business, right? We know the three rules. All num Rule number one, all things being equal. People want to do business with friends. Yeah. Rule number two, all things not being equal, people want to do business with friends. <laughs> and rule number three, make friends. <laughs> I love it. I love that. <laughs> so it's just, it's all about relationship building, I think, at the end of the day.
I think the I think the statistic is something ridiculous, like eighty two percent of all sales transactions are done. The the agent on either side has some personal connection with the client yeah. that they represent. No, I'm not I mean, surprised. it's there, I'm not yeah. Surprised. There's no there's no question that that uh, you know this idea of cold calling is 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 hey look if you if that's how you're getting clients if that's what you can do and if you're good at it great but if you've got relationships that you can tap into um, then that's that's going to be gold and it's, that goes back to what we call the sameness connection the principle of liking that's the, that's a the sameness is it that's the um, uh, the persuasion principle that deals with how we react when we see ourselves in common or some connection with the other person. And there is a huge correlation to trust building when you see something about that person, whether it's you're friends with Sally and I'm friends with Sally, therefore, you know, by the transit of property, we should be friends. Or whether it's that, I, you know, we, we have a school in common or we both like dogs. It could be anything um, that makes that connection. And when you have that little spark, um, it can build trust very, very quickly. For sure. I, from my own standpoint, I want to do business. I want to do work with somebody who I like, know, and trust. It's yeah. to your point. And that's what, whether it's a real estate agent, whether it's a life insurance policy, yeah. whether it's an attorney, whether whatever, a, some type of service you want to, whether it's your dentist, you want to go to people that you like, know, and trust. It's that yeah. simple. Hey, uh, this is fascinating stuff. Where can people find you online? So you can find me. I have a. I have two blogs. One is called Growing the Pie, which is uh, focused on negotiation specifically, and the other one is called Unreal Estate. Both of them can be found at my name, EricGislison.com. Both of those blogs, and and they're they're both fascinating. I think um, you can also find me at, at Eric the Expert. That's my Instagram handle. That's where I do most of my video content, um, and then it also lives at Eric the Expert. It lives at, on my YouTube channel. Um, so those are, and then, so, and then, uh, Facebook, you can find me on Facebook as well, Eric D. Gislason. Um, but, uh, yeah, Instagram is really where I'm doing most of my, uh, most of my content nowadays. Perfect. Perfect. And people that want to learn the art of negotiation, they come to your website, they can go through and, and sign up with your course, correct? Absolutely. The, the, the Rennie is the real estate negotiation Institute, which you mentioned earlier, the Rennie.com. If you're a real estate professional out there, there is no better real estate negotiation content than this. They, we, we offer the, not only a core concepts class, but then an advanced concepts class and a certified multiple offer expert designation, which is an award-winning course. But Tom Heyman, the, the guy who started uh, the Real Estate Negotiation Institute, is brilliant. And the course content is amazing. So if you're anywhere in the United States, you can find our instructors. We're doing online courses. Uh, in many states, we offer uh, continuing education credit. And I teach nationally, but I also teach continuing ed in New York State. So if you're a New York City, New York State agent, find my courses. I teach through the Real Estate Board of New York. Um, and, uh, and these courses are phenomenal. I mean, you can start using this content the day that you leave uh, the, the class. It's really immediately uh, implementable. Beautiful, beautiful. And we'll link some of those up in the show notes. Guys, click on the links if you want to see more about Eric and his company. Hey, uh, thank you very much for shedding insight into this uh, awesome topic, negotiation, and continued success to you. Thank you so much, Nate. I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. 
And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.